Welcome to The Portable Pastor, a podcast of relevant biblical teaching, linking ancient truth with today's challenges. Each week, Pastor Mike will share God's Word to help you and remind you that God is pro-you. So download the outline from fbcclover.life and get ready to hear today's teaching. Here's Pastor Mike. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Portable Pastor Podcast. Uh, We have been looking at Matthew for the last few weeks and looking at the temptations of Christ, but I want to take a break in that. Today, I want to share a message from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 entitled, Christians Show Love. I figured since Monday is Valentine's Day, I thought it it might be good to investigate this uh, topic of love. Now, I'm confident that this passage we're going to look at, 1 Corinthians 13, especially verses 4 through 8, has been read at... At every wedding that's ever been performed since Paul wrote this, I mean, it is poetic, it's beautiful, it's heartwarming, and it's it's perfect for those occasions. However, if if you examine the chapters before and after, you will see that this teaching of love is not originally intended for couples alone. Now, granted, we can we can absolutely apply these things to our relationships, but that's not what this writing on love is all about. Now chapter 12 teaches us that we are to use our spiritual gifts in the church. It includes language about every believer's place in the body of Christ. And chapter 14 discusses more about using those spiritual gifts in the church and worshiping God in in an orderly fashion. It seems then that chapter 13 is all about how the church, both local and global, treats one another. Since chapter 13 is sandwiched between language written to the church, it makes sense that, that it's, it's also for the church. Now, I'm convinced that this chapter is about exhibiting love in the church. Now, the church is, of course, made up of people who've, who've trusted Jesus for their eternal salvation. The church is, is not the, the organization of a group of believers, and it's not the building that houses them. The church is made up of actual believers. God has saved them. He's placed them in a, in a local group of believers called the local church and, and into a larger group of believers that, that expands across the globe. That's the global church. But it's this local church of believers in Corinth and by association us in the church that we're in, like FBC Clover, this is the the situation, this is the group that Paul is writing to. The local church is to exhibit love. Now understand that this is not the love that is permeating a lot of local churches today. That's pseudo-love. It's offered as a, a spiritual act to to embrace, to accept, even affirm sinful lifestyles because Christ wants us to love people for salvation, right? Well, let me tell you something right now. No one has ever loved anyone else to salvation. The Bible is very clear. Salvation occurs when the Holy Spirit draws someone to himself and that person places their trust in Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No human can save another human. It doesn't matter if you love that lost person until the day they die. If they do not accept Christ, if they do not accept what Christ offers, then they will die and go to a sinner's hell. Without accepting Christ, they're, they're, they're done. 
Now, the church might introduce the love of God towards a person, but to accept them and their sinful lifestyle will never allow the Holy Spirit's conviction to be heard in their lives. It's just going to thwart that effort. So, yes, we, we're, we're supposed to love people, but love is always honest, okay? True love will always drive a person to do what's best for another person. Living a sinful lifestyle without the blessings of God is not the best for anyone. I mean, think about it. What's more loving, acceptance of sin or warning about sin that causes someone to go to hell? Of course, it's it's warning people. So so let's let's drop the the ooey gooey parts of of love and understand exactly what this passage means in this context. Okay, now think about it. the the church has spiritual gifts to be used for the betterment of the group, and everyone has a part to play in that group. So how are we to go about go about about doing our part? Well, the short answer is is love. We're to do this in love. So let's read this chapter in context without the flowery expressions spoken to fiancés all over the world. And let's, uh, let's read this. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains... But have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. All right, let's stop there. The first thing a believer has to realize is that an unloving Christian is useless. An unloving Christian is useless. All right, now just take out the fact that if love's not inside a person, then it's impossible for them to be a Christian. You, you can't do that according to 1 John, right? But but let's let's take that part out. Th- this sounds so harsh. It, it's even without, um, or especially without understanding the context of this passage. This sounds so so harsh. So from the three chapters mentioned that, that I mentioned earlier, we're to worship in love, serve in love, and live with love. And so I think that verse 1 means that an unloving Christian is annoying. They might be teaching or preaching or, or even speaking in tongues, but if it's not done in love for the betterment of the church, it's just noise. And loud noise, useless noise, is, is annoying. I tell you, noise without purpose drives me crazy. Maybe it drives you crazy too. Like when your teenager plays music in in their car, the volume is unbelievable and the music sounds nothing like the the music that you grew up with. So, So you tell them to turn it down. Why? Because it's pointless. It's pointless noise to you. Likewise, a Christian who does all of these great things and maybe even runs their mouth all the time without using loving words that benefit others is just annoying. He he's helping helping no one. So the second reason an unloving Christian is useless is because the gifts of an unloving Christian are worthless. Verse 2 says that a person might be able to prophesy correctly. They might understand a lot of things and can explain a lot of things. They might even have incredible faith. But if those things are shown without love, without the betterment of others in mind, without the cause of Christ being pushed forward, they're worthless. They're worthless. Do you know what worthless is? Do you know what that phrase in the scriptures, I am nothing, literally means? 
It, it's like it's like eight kids choosing sides for a basketball game, and seven are picked, and the team of three decides it's just better to play one man down than to add you to their team. Your existence will not make the game more evenly matched at all. That's what worthless is. You bring nothing to the table. A Christian's special talents, no matter how incredible they are, if they're not done out of love for the betterment of others in the cause of Christ, they are considered worthless. Now, a third harsh reality, and, and granted, I admit these are harsh, but this is what the Scripture teaches. A third harsh reality in this passage of love is that the religious works of an unloving Christian gain nothing. They gain absolutely nothing. I mean, think about it. People go to great lengths for personal gain, even to gain spiritual blessings. You might you might give to the church in hopes of gaining respect, or you might even give uh, all of your time participating in worship hoping to gain the acceptance of God. But if you're not doing these things out of love, love for God and love for others, you're not going to gain anything. Giving is not an investment strategy, and and worship is is not a duty. These things are are, are to be done in love for for the betterment of others and for the glory of God. Anything short of that will will net you nothing. Now, the next part of this passage is the the verbiage that we use in weddings because at weddings, people expect to hear that lovey-dovey stuff, right? I mean, have you ever been to a sappy wedding? Man, I have. I call them airplane weddings because everyone needs to be close to a barf bag. The whole ceremony is oozing with those, those sappy slang expressions of love. And that's what this passage has turned out to be. I wish the preacher could just say, God's listening. Do you love and intend to keep him? Good. Do you? Good. All right, you're stuck together now. Let's pray. But no, 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 no. It can't be that simple. We have to have processionals and recessionals where grown adults meet the night before and practice walking, practice sitting down and standing up. And we include unity elements like like sand or knots or or ropes because our audience obviously is made up entirely of second graders who need an object lesson to understand that we want to be united together. Everybody wants to get married in a in a new barn that looks old. It's not old, but it looks old. Not because they've ridden horses or that's a special place where they met or they've ever gotten up hay, but because of the pictures. They're beautiful and they portray down-to-earth people. Then these down-to-earth people go on their honeymoon to a swanky resort and remove, uh, you know, to, to remove everything that's normal and then return to move into a neighborhood where people actually mow their lawns with battery-operated push mowers. This is ridiculous. All right, all right, I've chased that long enough, sorry. All right, so this passage was not written specifically for weddings, although in many ways it does apply to how a husband and wife are to treat one another. Understand that this passage was written to a church who needed to learn how to love one another. Let's read verses 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I know, I know, deep sigh, swoon, and all that stuff. But look, the church in Corinth was struggling to love one another. They needed to know that love is befitting of a Christian. 
There is no better person on the face of the earth to exhibit love than a Christian. A Christian has received the greatest expression of love. I mean, listen to John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Christ died for sinners, right? And he saved some because of his great love. So there's no better person to exhibit the love of God than one to whom that love has been given. Now, verse 4 and 5 speaks of focusing on the betterment of others. The Christian is focused on others. Listen to the, the language again. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. That's all about us and them. And to focus on others in such a strong way, that, that's a serious charge. I mean, we're to have patience for their betterment, kindness for their betterment, happy, uh, you know, being happy for their betterment, and personal humility for their betterment. I mean, even we have to be gracious for their betterment. A Christian, a Christian focuses love towards another in these ways because this is exactly what Christ has done for them. Now, verse six is not is not rejoicing. Um, says. You know, you're not to rejoice with wrongdoing. Love doesn't do that. And, and this is true. A Christian is displeased with sin. How can a Christian ever be accepting of, of a sinful lifestyle and truly love someone and never express the danger of sin? Sin separates people from God. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin, sin it, it lands people in hell. How can we ever be pleased when a person sins? For the life of me, I cannot understand the lack of love that churches exhibit by accepting sinful lifestyles into their congregations. Do they not care that those people are going to hell or at the very least missed out on the blessings of God in this life? This is why churches are to speak against sin. We're to tell people of the dangers of sin because we love people. And we want the best for them now and in the next life. A Christian is displeased with sin. Verse 6 also tells us that a Christian enjoys truth. Now this phrase is a, an oppositional phrase to the previous one. It's meant to show a difference in what we value. We do not celebrate sin. We celebrate truth. And the Bible is the absolute authority in moral living. It's the very word of God that's intended to be a handbook for our lives. It tells us the truth. Even its heroes are exposed with truth. Abraham was a liar. Moses had anger issues. David was an adulterer. Peter was a coward. Paul was a, a self-righteous, pompous jerk the first part of his life. So the Bible tells the truth, and so should we. It isn't easy but it's always needed. People need the truth even if it's hard to hear because truth is what will set them free. This is why we Christians revel in the truth. We get excited when truth is taught and lived out. A Christian enjoys truth. Now there are four things in verse 7 that teach us that teaches us about, about love. Because of the love that's in us, we Christians bear all things. That means that a, a Christian is quietly enduring. Now, the original language of that phrase, bears all things, means that a Christian endures all that the world throws at him. 
all that the, the church throws at him without complaining. Have you ever heard the phrase grin and bear it? This is exactly what that phrase means. A Christian will endure hardships and that he's going to endure those that come his way, even from fellow believers sometimes, and grin and bear it for the sake of love. Now, according to verse 7, a Christian will, will trust other Christians. That's what is meant by believes all things. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible Commentary explains it this way. A Christian who loves unsuspiciously believes all that is palpably false, all that can, all that it can with a good conscience believe to credit to the credit of another. That, that means that unless a lie is clear or a pattern of lies is evident, we're to trust one another. If we are quick to denounce what another Christian says and does, we might demean his reputation, his name, or his purpose. And if it's false, that is sin. Now, in the church, we elect, we hire people to do certain jobs. We should trust them to do so. We trust that our fellow believers are going to carry out their part of the Great Commission of being a Christian. We must trust other people to do this, to show love. Another point in verse 7 is that a Christian is optimistic. A Christian will, will see hope for another even when that person doesn't see it in themselves. I read a quote that said, Optimism means trusting the next chapter of your life because you know the author. But realistically, there are times when we are beaten down with, with the cares of life, like like a, a flower in, in a monsoon, right? So there are times when we're beaten down. There's times when I, I'm beaten down. I, I know that. So someone has to remind us that our eternal hope is in Christ and that he will save us for eternity. If we love one another, we're going to send optimistic words of encouragement to one another when they're down. Now, verse 7 also teaches that a Christian is steadfast. Literally, that phrase, endures all things, means a Christian who, who loves is able to endure persecutions with a patient and loving spirit. Persecution is going to come to each of us, maybe even inside the church. This was the case in Corinth. Why should we expect any less? And when it comes down, we loving Christians will not lash out at one another. That's just not in our spiritual DNA. We will be steadfast and hold to showing love for each other. Christians who fail to do this are, are not exhibiting love in that situation and will be held accountable. Now, finally, in verse 8, a Christian is, is promised love. Even if there's no other person alive who shows love towards you or you're the only one pushing in the cause of Christ to the world, the love of Christ will be dispensed at his coming. It will be dispensed to us. Love will never end. That's why Paul finishes this chapter with verse 8 and following. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I've fully been, been fully known. 
So now faith and hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Christ loves you right now. He will love you from now on. Now think about it. Spiritual gifts will will cease. They're not going to be used anymore. They're, They're going to come to an end. Wisdom will not need to be taught or explained. Tongues will not have to be used for everyone to understand the gospel. Nothing will have to become more perfect. We'll reach, we'll reach full spiritual maturity and know Christ fully. There's nothing else to be done. So Paul closes with the teaching that Christians need to value three things, really just three things. Everything else is going to come to an end. Everything else is temporary. We hold the faith and hope and love. And Paul says that love is the greatest of these three things. He teaches this because even faith and hope will come to an end. We need need faith now. But we're not going to need faith when Jesus returns and fulfills his promise. It's faith fulfilled. We need hope now, but we're not going to need hope when we begin to live with him in eternity. He's right there. There's nothing to hope for. So out of these three, only love will exist. That's why he calls it the greatest thing. So I have two questions for you today. Do you know the love of God? Have you experienced it? Have you received the free gift of salvation from God? If not, you need to accept that gift. The truth is your sin has caused you to have the destiny of a sinner's hell, but you can escape that by acknowledging that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the son of God. He did die on the cross for your sins. And he rose from the dead, proving that you will do so as well. You acknowledge that. The Bible says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God God raised Jesus from the dead and you will be saved. Are you ready to receive the love of God? If so, pray a prayer similar to this. Use your words. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner and I know I'm bound to hell but I'm trusting in your son. He said he would die for me and he did it. And he rose again, proving that I could have eternal life. So I accept that gift and I'm putting all of my faith and my hope for the future in Jesus. Please save me. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, it's as if God erased your sins. They're covered under the blood of Christ. The sacrifice that he made covers your sins. And you are now in the love of the Father. And you always will be. You always will be. Do you know the love of God? You do now. But a second question, do you show the love of God? Does that... Is that exhibited in your life? Do, 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 do people see that in your actions or hear it in your words? Do they, do they attribute the, the intentions of your words and your actions to, to show love? If not, you need, to, you need to work on that. It wouldn't hurt for all of us to work on that. We need to show the love of God better. And that's why Paul encourages us as a group of believers to do so. 
because people will be pointed to him. Well, let's remember um, what the Lord offered to us in a special time of the Lord's Supper together. If you have something to drink and you have some chips or crackers, please take them. If not, go ahead and and pause the recording and go get that and, and come right back. So let's observe the Lord's Supper together. This is one of the ordinances of the church that's been practiced for over 2,000 years now. Christ set this up for, for us to remember what he did to save us. It's commended in the scriptures that only, only believers should participate in this. Now, you don't have to be a member of a church, but you do have to be a Christian who's committed your life to Christ to observe this special ordinance. The scriptures are clear that those who practice this in vain will experience some retribution from God. So let's take a moment and prepare our hearts to receive the communion. Would you pray with me? Dear God, I remember you and I I want to do this, but I want to have the right heart. So would you... Forgive me where I failed, and, and maybe you need to list some of those things out. Lord, I, uh, I failed in the pride of life. Uh, I failed in, in lusting with my eyes and with my flesh. God, would you forgive me for that and prepare me for a close communion with you? In Christ's name I pray, amen. If you would take your... Uh, chip or or cracker or bread. Jesus was with the disciples when he broke bread and he thanked God for it. And he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and eat. Now take your, your drink. Jesus took a cup of wine and he told his disciples, as often as you drink this, remember me. Go ahead and drink. Would you pray with me, God? We remember that your body was broken for us. We remember that your blood was poured out for us. It was your sacrifice that covered our sins because you had none. Only you could do this. And we remember this for your glory and your glory alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for listening today. I hope this has been a blessing for you. Come back next week. We're going to get right back into our sermon series in Matthew, and we're going to talk about Matthew uh, uh, Matthew's account of Jesus being tempted by the lust of the eyes. And this is going to be a great teaching next week. But until then, have a great week. If you have a question or comment and want to start an online conversation, email me at mike at fbcclover.com. Until then, be blessed and remember that God is pro you. Thanks for listening to the Portable Pastor Podcast. Pastor Mike serves as pastor at the First Baptist Church in Clover, South Carolina. FBC Clover is a church that focuses on loving God, loving people, and making disciples. For more information about our church and our ministries, or to make an online donation, go to fbcclover.com or email us at fbcclover at gmail.com. Until next time, be blessed. And remember, God is pro-you.